from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest. That includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Innsmouth BC. We hope to see you soon because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. I'm ready to talk about horny vampires and time clocks. Okay, cool, cool. Hey everyone, that was just uh, <laughs> I was just Gretchen Brooks telling you what the episode's about. I'm D.B. Spitzer, and to my virtual right is Gretchen Brooks and David Heath. How are you two doing this week? I would say I am triumphant. Ooh. <laughs> All right. Nice. Well, How are you doing? I would say we are triumphant. Man. So I don't know if you guys heard her, but when we were out the door, she said that ours was the most attended panel in that space. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. We just finished up uh, a few days ago a really, really cool panel uh, at Rose City Comic Con. Hey, Gretchen, how are you doing today? I'm I'm good. <laughs> good, 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 good. I just, just want to check, make sure everyone's good before we proceed. Yeah. Let's talk about Rose City Comic Con, and then we can get into the show. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Rose City Comic Con. I was sick and a little woozy, left all my notes. Um, So my memory's a little bit different, but I just remember a room full of, a huge room full of people, and it going well, and sweating profusely. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah it went really well experience. I thought it was a good panel I mean yeah. uh, I really liked our audience inter- interactions yep. I was impressed by their questions I thought they were really thoughtful and it was um, good to see a few familiar faces in the audience sure yes. yeah and was- we had 194 people oh wow I thought there was only like 80 something no, uh, you just had to look past the because we used two rooms. Wow! Oh, yes. <laughs> I thought yeah, it, was it was like one ninety four or one ninety six. Yeah, there's a lady that was clicking with a little clicker. Yeah. Okay. Okay. My well, only complaint about the entire convention, honestly, is that they didn't have water. What the? Oh heck? yeah, yeah, yeah. There wasn't water what? for the people at the table. <laughs> that was. Yeah, what is this, like, Fan Expo? Come on. 
That's right. It happened there too. We were like, no water. What? Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys get water at uh, uh, Wasabi Con? Yes. They were, uh, they were room temperature, but the yes. Okay. Hey, there you go. Come on. <laughs> All right. Yeah. No, we were triumphant. We talked about science fiction and horror. And uh, I moderated it with a 101 degree temperature. <laughs> I, I sat mask. next to you and breathed your air. Yeah. Oh, well, you wore a mask, thank goodness. Thank tight, goodness. tight, tight, tight. I was double masked. Um, and yeah, no, no, it, it went really well. Uh, I remember, I mean, besides everyone kind of being a little bit wavy, uh, I, I remember everyone had like really good questions and we had fun, smart things to say. It's like, not that I'm surprised by that, but I, you know, it's just, I'm surprised that it all came out well. And it's hey, like awesome video presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's like. From now on, I'm going to have to, like, have Dave do notes for our presentations. Because <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. If everything's organized, it comes out smoothly. And it's not just a, I don't know, muck fight. Yeah. <laughs> it felt good. It felt good. Everything, yeah. I mean, we got, I feel like I got all, everything that I had note-wise, I feel like I got to say and show and talk about and all that. So I'm, I thought it was a good, I thought we had a really good um, performance in general. Yeah. So this yeah. is coming out next week, right? Yes. Next week. It's yes. coming out next week. Yeah. So, so you're going to hear this while make another announcement. Or HP it's Lovecraft. Gen, it's not general knowledge, but it's not secret, but there's another yeah. announcement coming. No, I'm not pregnant. <laughs> Neither am okay. I. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what's the announcement, Dave? We are going to be at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival doing a panel. Oh, and that panel is on what's that? It, it's going to be Lovecraft in Japan again, and it's going to be some modifications off of the one we did in WasabiCon, but it's going to be related. Oh, cool. And I'll be there, right? Please. You better be. Okay, cool. All right, I'll be there this time. I wasn't there for the last one. Well, that's... But I've been there for, I feel like, uh, like there's variations on Cthulhu and comics and bits and pieces of that and Cthulhu and literature that we've talked about that have uh, bits and pieces of that are now being expanded in Lovecraft in Japan. And we're also expanding upon that uh, through cultural stuff and, I don't know, just general history. So And maybe we'll bring some friends or two. Yeah. Yeah. Watch this space. So that means we won't be recording next week because we're going to be busy with the festival stuff. Yep. Yep. So uh, who knows? Uh, I might try and record at the festival, but Ooh. as we all know, that hasn't really happened since 2018. So <laughs> you live on the edge. I want to party with you. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So. Enough with announcements, enough about how cool we are and how awesome of a job we're doing. Uh, let's talk more about how cool we are and such an awesome of a job we're doing. Um, this, yeah, no, this podcast is uh, brought to you by listeners like you. 
and people who pay for stuff, buy things uh, through our sponsors and whatnot. And right now, we have some really good deals going on with anycubic.com. Uh, actually, no, don't go to anycubic.com. Hit the show link and get deals. Uh, if you go to anycubic.com, you'll look at it, and the prices will be one thing. If you go with us, the prices will be something else and crossed out. I'm getting myself an Anycubic Photon 4K resin printer right now for $189. It's going to be showing up at my house before the Lovecraft Fest so I can print cool things to give my friends. Also, I just picked up an Anycubic Cobra Neo for $150 to replace an Ender 3 that it's it, it was too expensive to I'm I'm done with my Enders any cubic is all I'm doing any cubic look for it in the show notes so yeah no oh, man the the resin printer is really cool you're going to see some beetles that I uh, not 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 for lovable lads from Liverpool but okay. the uh insects uh, I, I, I printed a Japanese rhino beetle and made it into a magnet that my buddy JC is going to be selling at the Dude. Lovecraft convention. Uh, he's going to be under Orange Design, our company, and check them out because they're going to be awesome. Him and his son, Walter. And uh, Walter's excited about what we're talking about because he was born in Japan. He's half Japanese. He likes Lovecraftian stuff, so he feels like it's like, Oh, wow. The only thing better you could have done is like saxophones and Warhammer. It's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would love to get one of those um, horn beetles because I think that'd be kind of cool to turn into a brooch. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll uh, print one up for you and awesome. uh, not glue it to a magnet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll so, totally like, um, like I'm going to turn into like a. Um, um, Japanese street fashion Lolita accessory. Oh, yeah. I always feel like I need to explain when I say I dress in Lolita fashion. Like, I'm a Lolita fashion enthusiast. Um, that means I like Japanese street fashion. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, through the gates of the silver key. Through the gates of the silver key. That's the one I thought it was. It's the one that I've, like, read twice and been like, why did I read this one again? And uh, Swami Chandraputra and our favorite... Randolph Carter. Um, yeah, no, it's it's a it's a clock. It's a time machine. It's it's both. It's not really it's interesting. Both. It looks interesting, but it's not. So is it the thing that like, OK, I don't know anything about like I, I, I'll, I always do this. I'll go. I don't know anything about. I know very little. And I'm sure curious is like, is this the thing that's. Um, the like the Dr. Menagerie Marginis um, clock machine thing that like David said it might possibly be. Yeah. Is this so, so, the time clock? Yeah. So De Margini, it's in De Margini's house when they're reading Randolph Carter's will and his nephew's contesting, saying he's dead. Oh. And De Margini is saying, well, no, he's not really dead. He's just been mutated in an alien body and asked this mysterious bearded Indian man, who's definitely not your uncle, and he'll tell you all about it. Yeah. Oh. So, so it's thought to be De Marginis' clock, but it really is the clock that Randolph Carter uses to escape through time 
And he probably, it, it's assumed just from the story, that he brought it into DeMargini's house. Well, yeah. I got to say, I kind of want this clock in the sense of because, I mean, a coffin-shaped clock sounds really rad, in my yeah. opinion. <laughs> like, I would totally hang that on the wall. Sure. It'd be kind of cool if it had a little mummy in it. But, you know. And so Lumley takes it, and he goes even farther with it, and he gives it, ends up in the hands of Titus Crow. Mm-hmm. And it's basically, under Titus Crow, it's basically the TARDIS. Yeah. In yeah. fact, it's got so many weapons, it seriously damages Ethiqua. And Lumley, now Lumley, I, I like, so I like the Titus Crow stories when they're closer to Lovecraft. I don't particularly like them when they're Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon. So here's, here's my, 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 my intro to this then. Um, I think Brian Lumley's a cool guy to sit down and smoke a cigarette with and chat out in front of the Hollywood theater, but I'm not a huge fan of his writing. And I find Titus Crow stuff kind of like dumb action movie with some tentacles in it. <laughs> it to me, it's a mixed bag. Some of them are that. Some of them, I think, are good, solid cosmic horror. And I don't mean like the the books are dumb, but it's like like um. Just kind of like action movies, how action movies have kind of like a set structure, not like the books are dumb, but it's just like it just feels like a big um, action movie set. To, to, to me, it's 1930s Flash Gordon. Yeah. OK. OK. Gotcha. Um, but Lumley is. A very much. At least in his writings, an espouser of the Derlithian heresy. And that is, for people who are listening, is that this, that the mythos is actually a good versus evil story. Lovecraft would just have been shocked at that. And so he, he's dead before uh, Derelict starts espousing it. But in this sort of the, the good guys or the better guys, or at least the people or the creatures that sometimes align with the human beings are the elder gods. <laughs> Lovecraft almost never uses the term elder gods. Yeah. And when he does, he's talking about things like Greek and Roman mythology. Mm-hmm. This whole idea that these that Nodens is the leader of the elder gods, that's going to be Derleth. And Lumley's going to take that and he's going to run with it. And so Demargenes' clock was basically created by the elder gods to give the humans a fighting chance. Dave, thank you for sticking your neck out for the Derlethian heresy. Um, I myself, I, I, I kind of am. Oh, I'm not nice when I talk about it. <laughs> well, that's only one of many of Derleth's heresies. Oh, sure, sure. We didn't even get into elemental uh, heresy, but yeah. No, we have not. All right. So. What more can we say about this clock? Uh, that, like, I don't know. It's 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 a TARDIS for some other people. It's just this, I don't know, knickknack to let you know that occult things are going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but other yeah. than that, 
Like, and, and it, it reminds me too that at the end of the fourth Doctor, yes, the tar the Master's TARDIS is disguised as a grandfather clock. Uh-huh. In fact, that's what the Master uses to take over Nisa's father's body. Oh wow! When he goes to set the clock, he uses it to possess his spirit into Nisa's father. Uh... And so I don't know the time and if it's independent, but you know, Lumley's English, the BBC's English. Yeah. Also, and the first time travel story, which is, and I've talked about in the past, is the clock that ran backwards. The time travel device is a grandfather clock. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, it's kind of natural that, that, that they take, you know, this form. And especially if there's this sort of hidden dimensional pocket. And it's been decades. But one thing I do remember and will probably is the I always mispronounce it Tendalosians oh yeah they you know they chase people travel through time yeah and if you go through time a certain way like the Ithians do they can't detect you sure yeah but I'm pretty sure uh in the Titus Crow novels they could track the clock okay yeah, no, I mean, I just stay away from time travel in general just because the fact that if there's a, a dimension that lets you travel through time, there's probably something that lives there. So I don't want any of that. So I just stay away from it in general. Fair enough. Yeah. I don't time travel. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just made me think about the fact that when they brought back the Master storyline in the more recent um, episodes of Doctor Who, um, it was through a pocket watch. So I thought... That's kind of interesting that it's linked yeah. back to like the fourth doctor's master um, uh, being a grandfather clock. Pretty yeah. neat. Yeah. Something I want to pop up right now is if we think about it, we have like uh, folks like Brian Lumley. We have uh, uh, British horror authors, uh, Neil Gaiman, uh, Ramsey Campbell. Uh, just, you know, uh, how many of them? have been influenced by episodes of Doctor Who that they saw like years ago or as a child or, you know, last weekend. I... <laughs> not, not only Doctor Who, definitely, because Doctor Who as a child was scary. Yes. Yeah. Doctor Who was scary, but Quatermass. Quatermass oh, Quatermass. yeah, yeah. Moss. I also, yeah, no, that's such a good film. Like, uh, British horror is its own thing. Yeah, and... I remember actually going to one of Derek Cook's um, uh, panels discussions about Quatermass. I yeah. learned a whole lot at one of those at um, H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival in the past. Oh, yeah, 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 no. And, yeah, no, uh, British... And, and, and let's give credit where credit is due. Sure. Who was it that told Ramsey Campbell that he should set his mythos stories in England? Oh, well, that mm. would be uh, Augie Dog Derleth. Yeah, so yeah. so we, we badmouth Derleth, but every five bad things we say about Derleth, we got to say one nice thing. Yep. And, and I think he was right about that. Sure, yeah. definitely, definitely. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting 
uh, Durleff, you know, was the one who kept everything going with the Cthulhu mythos. To, Absolutely. I mean, to be honest and frank about it, everything bad that he did, he also did things good. Like, people are going to look back at the Star Wars stuff and they're going to go, oh, that early stuff was amazing. And then that stuff was awful and that stuff. And then they made all this other stuff and all these other people started getting in. It's totally uh, doesn't have anything to do with the early stuff. And then, and then, and then, and then sometime in the 2050s, they started making this new Star Wars stuff that like actually felt like the old Star Wars. You know, I mean. Uh, you just media. told me you didn't time travel. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I don't travel <laughs> back in time. I don't ah, travel backwards I in time. But anyhow, I mean, I, I, I think that could be true with any kind of media that's lasted and had things based off of it. And I'm trying for the life of me. It's like, what, maybe Sherlock Holmes has that going on? Uh, vampires, for sure. Like Dracula stories have that going on where it's like, Things are kind of based off of the era they're on and like the style and the fashion. We keep going back to style and fashion, Gretchen. Uh, the style <laughs> and fashion always really is kind of derivative of the time that it's in, even if it's a period piece. Like the materials used in a Hammer film are not the materials that they actually wore during the day. It's it's the stuff that looks good on screen. Uh, a vampire film such as... Uh, Blade, you know, looks totally different than a vampire film uh, made in the 50s just because of style, scenery, like what it's based on. And uh, I don't know. I I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yes, to kind of maybe reel it back in. Uh, yeah, so Derelith did create what is believed to be the first small print successful printing house Arkham House yeah um, but we put him to side yeah I mean when they when you know the clock that ran ran backward was written you know in the 1890s mm -hmm. I mean the time traveling clock was just a brilliant idea sure but and Lovecraft, you know, it was kind of clever. In a lot of ways now, it's kind of cliche. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, you know, that's... It started somewhere. Yeah. All right. So, up next, what do we have, Dave? You're going to be talking about uh, one Carmilla. of everyone's... Yeah, one of everyone's favorite uh, female vampire types. And Absolutely. a little bit of information on Sheridan, uh, and I always, again, another name I always mispronounce. Le Fanu. Le Fanu, which Le Fanu. he was Irish, not French. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that, and then we'll, we'll go from the book to the movie. All right. Sounds good. And we'll all be back to talk about the movie. In Legacy Door, a lurker from space casts a shadow over time. We opened our eyes upon the human world. We found ourselves lying on an especially yielding bed in a room displaying scattered relics of their shallow past, tied together by more recently produced items meant to blend with the relics. 
typical. A sensitive journalist dreams of unknown lives. It seems like every time I close my eyes, they get stronger. I can't even say the last time I had a normal sleep, let alone a dreamless one. An outspoken lawyer defends the suspect in an unspeakable crime. And that client was Jonathan Strauss, held for the murder of his daughter, Abigail, and her companion, Harrison Reese. And a stalwart investigator tries to drag it all into the light. Some of the Reeses and the Strausses have been involved with something that seems to include an obsession with bloodlines and longevity for at least decades. Legacy Door is a weekly cosmic horror mystery podcast. An ensemble of actors tell a story, also available in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. Available now. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. I want to tell you all about something. I want to tell you about a guy I know in a place. This is James Corner of the podcast. It is awesome. It's gonna go fast. It's not the interview part. Ha ha. It's me, Dave, and this is the part of the show where I talk to you. Let's face it, Gretchen and DB are rad, but you're the one, you're my favorite. Yeah, you, you. You can't see this, but I'm pointing right at you. Yeah, you're my favorite. Except for you. You know, you know the one. You know what you did. I still love you, but you're my second favorite. Okay, with that out of the way, we're going to be talking about Hammers, the Vampire Lovers, in when we discuss movies today in Section 3. So, before we uh, discuss the, the movie, let's talk about the source material. And I'm talking about Carmella. Now, there's a lot of interesting things to talk about, uh, the novella uh, Carmela. Not the least of all is what most people remember or know about it. It's that Victorian lesbian vampire novel that started the whole lesbian vampire trope. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But one of the most interesting things about this story is that it was published 26 years before Dracula. So this is a pre-Stoker representation of vampire. 
So a lot of things that are going to be codified into vampire lore, uh, that they can't go out in the sun, that you create a vampire by a vampire basically biting a human being on the neck or a little bit more complicated than that, these all don't exist because this is going to be based more on the original vampire stories before Stoker did his thing. And, and Dracula's great. Stoker created this very complex vampire mythos that would not be what it is today without. But I find stories that were not influenced by him because, you know, they predate his writings fascinating and how they are different from our modern perception of vampires. Now, before we talk about the mother of all vampires, we need to talk about the father of the mother of all vampires. And that would be Sheridan Lafanu. Good thing that you didn't walk in here like 10 minutes early because I was just repeating his name because that's a harder name for me to pronounce than Narlathotep, and I always mispronounce, but I think I got it right. So for those of you that don't know who he is, you think, well, is Lafanu French? No, he was Irish. Lafanu was a rather prolific writer, but his two most famous stories, Carmela, of course, but the other is Uncle Silas. Now, if you're like me, most Americans, well, I'd heard the term, but I'd never actually read that. Uncle Silas is actually the first locked room murder mystery in which a body is found in a locked room. How did someone kill it or kill the person and leave the body there in the room always be locked? This became like a, you know, a huge trope and uh, eventually cliche, but it was a big thing in Victorian murder mysteries. And we even see later on people like Agatha Christie use it. Oh, and uh, he created the idea of the lesbian vampire. So we're going to talk about that because I know that that's why you're listening to this. Except for you. You're more concerned. Yeah, you, you, the one sitting over there. Yeah, you're more concerned about uh, Lafanu's relationship and history with God and how it is reflected in his literature. I like the way you think. So since our guest in the first row over there asked, and I'm going to tell you. Uh, so Lafanu assumingly grew up like an average, you know, Victorian Irishman whose father was a chaplain, probably pretty religious. And there's no real reason to think that he had left his lost his faith until things started happening to his wife. Now, his wife is going to tragically get very sick, and she is going to start sleep slipping away into madness during her disease, and where she believes that she can be saved by God. And, and a lot of people, of course rely on their faith, their religion, their savior, whatever, during time of personal illness. 
but she really hooks on to a point where she's giving all of her money away, where she would not basically let everything else go. And this religion will save me became this obsession which broke Lafanu. And when she, by the time she had died, because of this experience, he had become an atheist. Now that's important in Carmela because we see that Carmela is, in essence, the advocate for this. Where, you know, when Laura's father is saying, well, you know, it's God's will that all these women are dying. It's part of her plan. And, and Carmela is adamant that, no, there is no God. It's not God's will. It's some act of nature. Dot, 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 this whole time. She's hiding the fact that she is the force of nature, killing everybody. But she's adamant that there is no God. And that God was not only a, a myth, but... A dangerous myth and, and I honestly believe that this is parroting Lafanu's beliefs after what happened with his wife now the story is actually and we're gonna cover much more of the story I'm sure we're recording later today is rather faithful told in, in hammers the vampire lovers um, so I'm not going to really focus on this. And as we talked today, you know, that this is, there is going to be spoilers for both the book and the movie. Now, I'm not going to feel too bad because the book is, what, 152 years old? And the uh, the movie is only 100, or it's only 51 years old. It's just a baby compared to the book. Or a little vampire compared to an ancient vampire. I, I don't know what the analogy is you want to use. So I'm not going to feel too bad releasing some spoilers. Uh, but there's some definitely things that I want to, to cover. And one of them is the lesbian aspects. Which, let's be honest, is probably why... This story is still read 150 years later. And in a Victorian time where, of course, homosexuality existed, but was not accepted and was not definitely talked about in open, proper society. Now, is Carmela openly lesbian in the story? And yes, I keep, every time I read it, I come up with another opinion. I go, well, yes, it's hinted to, but it's just metaphors to know that, you know, that she definitely is very attracted to females. And if she is, and we're going to discuss, I've got some rather shocking opinions on the movie, which, you know, stay tuned and listen to what I have to say on that. But if she is truly a lesbian, which I think it clear enough she is, but how much she acts up on that is led up to each individual reader's mind. Did she love Laura? And 
I think that she did in her own way. And here's sort of, and again, trigger word, I don't know what the proper word is here, but just like that Fanu Lafanu uses this as a platform for his atheism, he is basically describing a toxic relationship where even if there's love, one person has power over the other and one person drains the other physically, emotionally, spiritually. Now, I don't think that that's that he's saying, and I definitely don't believe that this is true with all lesbian relationships. Of course it's not. It's just like any other human or romantic relationships. There's good, healthy ones, and there's ones that are not so healthy. And other than, you know, at least a little, on the surface, being open in the story, Lafanu doesn't really get, he doesn't even get to first base. Just some kissing and giggling and I love you so much. Uh, and that's in ways too, even if Carmela loves Laura and she's this ancient, ancient, like I think in this story, she's only a couple hundred years old. She's not completely emotionally mature. Even though she's older than every human being that ever, that was alive, she's not mature. And though Lafanu definitely sensationalizes the, the lesbian aspect because it sold stories and still does now, he's not saying lesbians are not mature. He's saying this one character who happens to be a lesbian is also immature and and I would be really shocked and maybe maybe not if Lafanu knew any out of the closet open lesbians but what he does do is he is definitely using this relationship this relationship that is frowned on by Victorian society as a symbol it is symbolic of the danger the romance the forbidden fruit of a gay society so this is very much a metaphor in the story but i do not think it's a commentary and it definitely should not be, I don't think it was a commentary then, and it definitely should not be as a commentary on real living people who are alive now, or his time. And it's also possible that this was one final take that to the church by uh, Lafanu, in the fact that, again, remember, he, he believes that his wife's insanity was driven, encouraged by the church and church members, and it pushed him into atheism. Maybe, I haven't seen it written, but maybe he touched what the church at the time labeled such forbidden topics because, you know, 
he's mad at him. And again, this is not to any type, embrace any type of, of, of views or of sexuality or people who are gay. I they're trying to understand why Lafanu used this. And there may have been some revenge on Christianity for this repression and these false promises, but it definitely made the story memorable. Now, the other thing that is memorable is, like I said, this is a pre-Dracula. So Carmela becomes a vampire not because she is seduced by a vampire male or female, and kind of a side that in Batman versus Dracula, or the Batman versus Dracula, you know, Dracula's wife is Carmilla, but okay, I don't think they read the source material, but okay, that's what you're going with, let's go there. But the older pre-Dracula belief that vampires were people who committed suicide. And in the story, Carmilla, who before her death, is at least in a hetero relationship, is upset because her fiancé is not giving her attention. She basically attempts to get attention by threatening to kill herself, or attempting to kill herself, and it's not stopped in time. Because she committed suicide, especially it's implied because she committed suicide for selfish reasons, she is returned as a vampire. Uh, again, I'm not justifying this. I'm not even saying that it's a bad story, but a lot of this is going to be because of what Lafanu went through with his wife. And there's one last thing, and, and I, I haven't, I've read a lot about Lafanu's uh, life and what happened, but I've never read anything, maybe that's just because I haven't read enough and I'm not really, uh, you know, I'm not a historian. I have a degree in history, but I'm not a historian. But I've never really seen anything tying this faction of his life with his fiction, especially Carmela's hatred for all things holy and God and the church. She is quite much the Antichrist, not in the fact that, you know, she is you know, the leader of the army of Gog and Magog, but because she, like Mrs. Lafanu, have been let down by God. She's not let into heaven. She sees that she has had an unjust event happen in her life by God. And she is going to, if she is not going to be part of this glorious Easter resurrection, then she's going to enjoy her life and take that God in this sort of pseudo-dark antichrist in that it's a, not the teachings of Christ, not that it's satanic resurrection that she has been given through vampirism. Now, the story is basically told through Laura's point of view. And Laura is this unreliable narrator. Hey, one of my favorite tropes. And so 
the general and the doctor and her father just really convince her that we killed Carmela. You don't have to worry. And at the end, we get this sort of, she's still 10 years later, and she's, according to the notes in the book, even though the most of it, the bulk, is Laura's journal, but she's told that, you know, that she, well, we're told that she's going to die soon after this, under mysterious circumstances, and that she still hears Carmela, and she has this feeling she's going to come in the room any moment. And most, at least most of the uh, reviews, critiques that I've read say, well, you know, that's just that despite Laura denying it, she is so infatuated and caught up and obsessed with Carmilla. But I have another opinion. What if the dudes lied? You know, the three men, what if they didn't kill or they thought that they killed Carmilla? And they lied to Laura. So my thought is that, you know, Carmilla survived. Now, we're going to see that in a variation in every sort of modern updated story which has Carmilla in it. But I've never seen any interpretations or reviews of the story that says that they believe that the reviewer believes that Carmilla is still alive and that eventually he's she's going to kill Laura. So one last thing before we get into the movie. Did Carmilla love Laura? Let's say that we're going to let's accept that she was attractive, that she was attractive and she desired and she had emotions and got pleasure from Laura. Was she in love? Well, I want to leave you with this thought. Love isn't always healthy. So, there, even though obviously this is a toxic, draining, dangerous, killing relationship, she might have loved Laura. And, and Fanu is, Lafanu is really well known for explaining what he has to answering things when he has to, but at the same point, leaving things up a little bit of mystery. And I, I think Marcella's, or Carmela, sorry, she has so many names, true emotions for Laura are left up for the reader. And for me, I believe that, yes, she did have this unhealthy love as far as Carmela could love. And that the best sort of description I could come up with is that even though she had feelings for Laura, she had the same sort of feelings that a young farm girl would have raising a lamb that she loved, knowing that eventually it was going to be Easter dinner. So that this love never gets to the point where she doesn't think that she will not consume Laura, take her life. Because remember, vampires in this universe don't make other vampires. It's a curse from suicide. So no matter what, 
even if she decided that she was going to stay with Laura all of her life, it would be Laura's life, assuming that Mad Fathers didn't kill her, of course. So, yes, I think she was in love, but that as much a love that Carmela could have. She couldn't have pure love. She couldn't have a non-selfish love. So, um, let's find out a little bit more about the movie. Vampire Lovers. Right. Um, moving on to the next part, just to remind everyone, if you like what you're hearing, like this episode, share it with people, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook, we're under People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, we're on Twitter, I don't really check Twitter, so... It's just kind of the automatic feed if you just want to listen to us on Twitter for some reason. You can find us on any place, any podcatchers that are out there. Of course, Facebook, Instagram, and of course, the YouTube where this episode will be. And, uh, yeah. Hey, everyone. It's me, DB. New sponsor on the show, Clary. Glary offers a great price and better quality goods and services for music lovers. Are you looking for good prices, free shipping, 100% quality guarantee? Glary's got you covered. Guitars, bass guitars, mandolins, they've got saxophones, trumpets, drums, they've got guitar cases, amplifiers, all the stuff that you need without having to break the bank. Inexpensive doesn't have to mean cheap. Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. 20 watt amplifiers for under $50. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under $80. Guitars themselves for under $90. Come on, folks, check out the show notes. Get a Glary. This part of the show doesn't have a theme song. This part of the show doesn't have a theme song. David and D.B. and Gretchen go to the movies. Hopefully next week we'll have a real theme song. Yeah. Hey, we're back. And uh, we're talking about the vampire lovers. Uh, yeah, no, we're talking about uh, the vampire lovers. Uh, 70s British goth horror directed by uh, Roy Ward Baker starring Ingrid Pitt. Peter Cushing, George Cole, Kate O'Mara, Madeline Smith, Don Adams, John Finch, and many, many more. Uh, it's, I love this movie. As I said, I've loved this movie since I was a little kid. I think I saw it at, uh, my aunt was supposed to be watching me, and it was on TV. I was on cable, and what? I What? Watched- Your aunt failed at her job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. But yeah, <laughs> I have I have many aunts, so I'm not throwing anyone under the bus by saying one of my aunts was neglectful in watching me and was like on the phone smoking cigarettes out wow. in the backyard. Wow. Yeah. And you got to see a really sexy movie. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even I realize it was sexy like... until years later. And I was like, yeah. oh, OK, yeah. <laughs> I literally haven't seen this movie in, I'd say, like, 25 years, and it had kind of, like, 
become this kind of distant memory that I was like, is this a fever dream that I had? Yeah. And no, no, I, this movie's glorious. And yes. also like halfway through it, I went, wait a second. Fucking Francis Ford Coppola, like copied this beat for beat. Yes. For yes. Rude. Yep. So I have to admit before today, I had only seen the edited made for TV version. Or oh, was there a version. different version? Well, just what they showed on TV. Oh. On 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 broadcast TV. So it is gorgeous. Yeah. It is a gorgeous movie. And and I'm not just talking about Ingrid Pitt. Uh I mean, it is it's beautiful. Yes. Um it is colorful. It is it is there is movement. The cast is amazing. The design is amazing. It's not historically accurate. No. But, no. Eh, you know, that's it. And and I think it's, you know, it's, they mentioned that it's in Europe, but, you know, it's it's obviously England, very English. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 No. Uh, England as Austria. What's that? Oh, sorry, sorry. I said, I think Ingrid Pitt's the only person that's not, <laughs> like, British. Yeah. Like, doing a British accent, everybody else is like, I mean, because she's Polish, right? Polish, yeah, yes. I believe so, yeah. So, one of the things I always love about Hammer horror film style films is that these are, um, their historical inaccuracies are actually beautiful in their own yes. right. Sure, like, I yeah. would totally wear 20 million of these dresses, right? Gorgeous. Yeah. Um, uh, the general's outfit, I would wear that every day right it's awesome yeah. right but obviously there's no <laughs> it's like we, we, we this is what this is a sexier version of the victorian era style of dress sure um, yeah 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 it's a, <laughs> yeah. And, and so there are two things that were happening that up this the reasons why the sex factor got up to in this movie one is hammer no longer had a deal to release a bunch of movies they had to release them through one at a time so they needed something that really bring in the audience that would capture them to get people to come so they had to take more rest they had to be more flesh also that in england the rating system was going to move up to the restricted which i think in england was x it was like their version of r but i'm not yeah. sure from 16 to 18 so they had the ability to increase skin and sexiness, but they also had the necessity. All right. And that, that's why it's going to be. And they also didn't quite have the budget that they had in the past either. But they make do with it. They, they do a good job covering it up. They had less mm -hmm. money. Yeah. Interesting. Have you seen the theatrical poster for the movie? Uh, I think Is so. Is that the one that's like, um, if you dare taste the deadly passion of yeah. blood nymphs? Yeah. yeah. That it, one's it's, cool looking. It's, it has, I, I feel like it, it uh, I, oh, oh, uh, it's, it's the one with Ingrid Pitt, like with bluish skin. Yeah, and she's like got a big old sword and, She's oh, no, no. 
No, this one. No, no, it's not. It's not a sword. I'm sorry. She's like reaching out, and there's a man yeah. on, in chains. Yeah, there's all these people in chains, and it's like a dungeon, and there's a bunch of vampires behind her and stuff. Oh yeah, now I see it. Like, when did that scene happen? <laughs> Never. Never. I mean, Ingrid Pitt as Smurfette. Yeah. <laughs> no, I really, I thought there was so much like good stuff. Like, I mean, immediately. So the moment that made me go, "Wait a minute," was yeah. when they brought the garlic flowers in, uh-huh. and I was like. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's Lucy. Okay, I get it. And then, all right, then the doctor. And it's like, now I realize, I mean, also, didn't, if I remember properly, wasn't Rom Stoker influenced by Carmilla? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure you're gonna talk about that in your like, in your, your minute, your, your in-between thing. But I was just curious if that was... <laughs> A- a- absolutely, and this was 26 years before Dracula. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. The book. So, so there are some things that I thought were amazingly accurate with the novella. All right. Which surprised me. Um, one of them is that because it is a pre-Dracula story, Carmela can go out in daylight. Yeah. Week. Yep, uh, and I've heard people complain about that, and saying it doesn't. Well, it matches with the original mythology, the turning into a cat and being coming intangible and things going through. That's from the the original story. Mm-hmm. Yes. So at the the part about traveling with her mother, mm-hmm. and the mysterious man where the it never goes anywhere. We don't quite know who that guy is. Mm-hmm. The guy on the horse, the man in black. Yeah, who was that? It doesn't go anywhere, but there's kind of an allusion to that in the short in the short story. I think that they were gonna. I think that they were going to make it like in the sequel. Uh... I don't know this for a fact, but my guess is that Ingrid Pitt so much carried the show that any idea like that was just written out. But yeah, you almost think that she's the agent for him, but she starts. She seems independent. Yeah, he's kind of away, so he doesn't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it makes you, was he like a mood thing? Was he death? Um, was he a master vampire? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, one of the things that made me laugh about this movie was like, okay, so the lesbian allegory, like good stuff, good time stuff. Um, the like she's like, I dream of a cat cover. I'm like, girl. <laughs> which, is, which is from the short story. The, what's that? Which is from the short story. She takes right. the cat. She's like, a cat's covering my face. I'm like, girl, that's not a cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so I'm immature. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so, are are you ready for my hot take? Yeah. Carmel is not a lesbian. I agree with you. And and, and yet, know who else agrees with us? Whom? Ingrid Pitt. Oh. Yeah, she's bisexual. I get the vibe that she's bisexual because, like, she... So, so Pitt, Pitt said that she played it as asexual. Oh. And if you look at it, there is. The, the only reason that she's seducing people is for safety and for food. That oh. she, She's saying that, that she, her version of Carmel got no pleasure, had no desire other than to feed and to be protected, and that she preyed on the human beings 
because that was their weakness. If there was another more effective way of hunting them, she would have done that. I like that. That's awesome. And you know what? I watched it today, and she does. She has this indifference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She she acts sexy, but when the, everyone looks, she has this flat indifference look. And, and I get where where Pitt was coming from on that. I like that. I like that take. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I once heard a story. So this is, I don't know, third, fourth, fifth hand information. Uh, but it comes from a good source, a friend of the podcast. Uh, Dominique uh, Lamacy's friend of the show, been on the podcast. She, we were sta- uh, standing around uh, talking one time at Lovecraft, and she was telling a story about, or I walked up right when she was talking about how uh, I believe Kate O'Mara had to dig her fang out of Ingrid Pitt's bosom because it kept falling in. I thought it was the other way around. <laughs> or the other way around, yeah, yeah. The, and that's in, that's actually in uh, Ingrid Pitt's uh, opening chapter of Women and Vampires. Oh, okay. So, well, so that it, we'll have to figure out which who got whose whose bosom got whose fangs. Yeah, that's a pretty much documented story. Oh, it wasn't anyone's fang. It was a brooch. That's what happened. What? Um, Oh, I was making a joke Oh, that's right. That's right. The brooch. I know. Where she was all like, she must have gotten stepped by my brooch. I'm like, girl, no. No. Who Who wears a brooch that far down on their boobies? Nobody. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's like everyone in this story, (sighs) Carmela has to have some other power um she's like, got like that presence clouds people's minds and makes them accept stupid excuses like especially you're that hot well there's that <laughs> but you know the 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 butler and the governess mm-hmm. They're heightened protectors. They're symbolic bodyguards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to get to her target, she has to go through the bodyguards first. Yeah. But, oh, man, everyone just accepts everything. And it's like, come on, people, use your brains. This is how vampires get to you. <laughs> yes, but this is, and and that's where where the nobles are sort of protected. They they don't know this, especially the yep. English. But remember, in world, this is pre-Dracula. Yep, yep. In world, this is pre-Dracula and one part takes place decades after the second part. Mm. And that's something that they don't really necessarily show in this movie. Like there's there's a a gap in time, but it feels like it's almost like 2 weeks later. Two it's weeks not. later in Lower Styria. <laughs> but yeah. And, and, and they say that very clearly. You know, the English would not know this. Yeah. But it's the local and the peasants that do. Because they're they're the victims of it. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. Um, what else do we got? <laughs> 
I mean, it's not a very like like you know um, deep movie. Yeah, I wasn't gonna say that, but it's like because I hate to use the term deep, but it doesn't have a sure. lot of like. There's very few allegories. It's pretty open. <laughs> Yeah. And it's um it's pretty expected of what it is. I mean, and I unfortunately am lacking a knowledge of like hammer horror, but I did not appreciate that the maid is named Gretchen and they spelled her name C H I N. What the hell? Gretchen's <laughs> <laughs> not spelled like that. that. Yeah, and especially if she's Austrian. It's certainly not spelled like that. Right. That and they changed Laura as the first victim where she is the narrator of the story. Yeah. Yeah. And the only reason that I could think of, and I can't find anything written down, is that Emma's this more traditional English name and a, a name that comes from, you know, English literature. Yes. Uh, so, or they just like the name Emma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something that happens when things get adapted. They just... I don't know. I, I, I think of it almost like uh, localization for video games when people are like, this didn't happen and that didn't happen and this didn't happen. It's like, yeah, it doesn't translate well to film, so it didn't happen. <laughs> but yeah, The Vampire Lovers, it's not very profound. It's a beautiful film. If you like boobies, it's a good movie. <laughs> Leonard um, Maltin said it was a passing grade of two and a half, calling it erotic, rather erotic, hammer chiller. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, what was one of the ones that I liked? Um, My oh, favorite man. is Bloodshed and Bosoms. Yes, that's it. So good. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Vampire Lovers. Uh, we didn't even talk about how Grand Moff Tarkin, uh, how, 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 uh, uh, Van Helsing uh, is is the general in this. We uh, Peter yes. Cushing is is so. Yeah. It's just so neat to see him and stuff. I I yeah, I like but him. he's like phoning this one in. You can tell he's just like ah, just this is a money one. He's like yeah. I don't have boobs. This isn't my movie. <laughs> I'll just stand here in my slippers and look look. Dashing. And dashing. Exactly. Yeah. I've, I felt his performance was, eh, I didn't even notice it, honestly. Yeah. Other than no. just being like, oh, it's, that's, hey, that's that guy. Yeah. No, they just put him in a suit and, just, you know, move your eyebrows occasionally. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah. There, there's like some, there's some moments mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where he hits the mark just right. Oh, yeah. 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 They're in between. He does a lot of, slow turn uh head nod and eyebrow acting in this movie which i i'm not like trying to be a jerk or anything but i really feel like that is like peter cushing's acting is so subtle like it's just like little head turns and like like raising an eyebrow and it's like uh-oh you're in trouble dude <laughs> oh yeah he would make a terrible, or he would make an amazing seventh grade teacher because that class would never get out of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's cute. All right. So next week, we are talking about, come on, I had my notes. There they are. Uh, oh, I wait believe a, a doom that is coming to a city. Oh. So. We're going to skip next week, right? That's Yep, yep. Next week okay. is H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. 
So we may have a live episode. We may not have a live episode. But the next episode is A Doom Comes to Gotham and uh-huh. uh, Tindalos, as in The Hounds of the Hounds. Everything Yay! else. This is something I actually know about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was so sad. I feel like such a poser being like uh, talking about Lovecraft stuff because it's like my Lovecraft knowledge is. I'm getting more and more as I go along, but oh, still. I'm I'm digging deep into the uh, Encyclopedia Cthuliana. It's I'm digging up like stuff that's like I don't know. Most Lovecraft scholars would be like, "Is that from a board game or is that a card from like?" <laughs> yeah, no, um, yeah, it's. <laughs> Yeah, no, no. We're getting into the territory of like, uh, if it was Star Wars, it's like asking George Lucas about the name of a Mattel action figure. Uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right. But yeah, uh, we're going to be back with uh, dogs that will follow you through time and Batman and the mythos. So, yeah. We'll see you all next time, everyone. We hope that you enjoyed the show. We hope that you check out our sponsors and we hope that you check us out on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Are we anywhere else that I'm forgetting about? Uh, Spotify. Yeah. We're yeah. Anywhere you find podcasts, that's where you find us. Did we mention the book of faces? Oh, the book of the Instagrams. The book of faces. We are always on the book of faces. The Facebook. um yeah so check us out there and we'll see you next time everyone this has been a really good show but i don't know if it's just because the fact that i'm like feeling better and i've been sick for a week well that's good we're glad (laughs) that you feel better so hopefully if you see me at lovecraft i won't be sick so (laughs) have a good one everyone you too bye 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 That was a good show. Yeah. Awesome. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio.